Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Welcome back. I feel like I've been away or something. <laughs> well, I have actually. Over the weekend, we went up to Shushwap Lake, where my daughter-in-law Heather's family has a cabin. She was so excited to take us up there, and we had a fabulous time, quiet, overlooking the lake. Seems I have a hard time coming back to the city whenever I go visit a quiet place. Maybe there's a message there. But I am really excited to be back into my regular podcasting plan, namely reading my work. I hope you enjoyed the chats with cool folk. I know some very interesting people, but editing conversation is really tricky. Who knew? So this week, I begin the second book of my trilogy in four parts. You know, I've, I've come to the realization that Gatekeeper's Deception is very long, so I'm going to have to think of it in parts one and two. I'm still working on subtitles, but I'll let you know once I've made a decision. In any event, today is the beginning of Gatekeeper's Deception. If you're just joining Totally Fantastic Title for the first time, you might want to go back to episode one and listen through Gatekeeper's Key before jumping in here with book two. It's kind of like those story records we had as kids where the narrator said, this is side two. Be sure to turn the record over and listen to side one first. <laughs> well, that's it. Let's get started. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace. Chapter 1. Whatever It Takes Kier leaned forward, her back as rigid as the chair on which she sat, and watched Valraker. The dark elf chewed the inside of his cheek. There was a slight tremble in his shoulder as he breathed deeply and forced a tight-lipped smile. He was trying to hide it all right, but she could tell. Beneath that mask of calm, the dark elf was distressed. The crackle of the fire challenged the silence in the small chamber. Val stood before her and her four companions with such an uncharacteristically formal attitude she forgot the full wine cup next to her. A week after you left on your mission, Val said, we received a message from Barthelen Castle. Kier made a quick calculation three weeks ago then. You will note that Kian is not here to greet you and he asked me to pass on his regrets. Kier felt like waving her hand to brush the comment aside. Clearly a higher concern took precedence over mere courtesies, but it wasn't her place to dismiss it. He returned in great haste to Barthelen Castle upon hearing that Lady Alon Mare has been taken seriously ill. Kier's heart jolted. How seriously? We do not know. The healers could tell us their observations, but have drawn no conclusions— all we know is that it seems her life may be threatened by this illness. The dread hung in the chamber like the deep resonance of a gong. The group waited. Valraker was not finished. The other part of the problem is that Alon Mare is pregnant. It stands to reason that if her life is in danger, so is that of the child. Here the dark elf turned away, and Kier saw his shoulder blades contract, controlling the emotion that surged. She looked around at her friends and frowned with concern at Derry. He looked nearly overcome with his palm pressed over his mouth. As Val's captain, he had known Kian and Alon Mare for at least half his life. There must be something we can do, Kier said. Do the healers not have any ideas? All five watched their leader expectantly. Valraker composed himself. 
It is true that there is one idea. Well, let's have it, Kier said. The dark elf contemplated her. I confess I'm moved by your depth of feeling for a dear friend of mine, though you have never met her. Kier frowned away her blush. They would never understand why Alon Mare meant so much to her. Valraker wandered over to gaze at the map on the wall. The healers at Barthelen Castle are the best in Rydris. They have employed the full spectrum of their craft, all the ancient arts, their knowledge of spells and charms, all their energy and internal powers, and have come up with nothing but minor, temporary remedies. They cannot even come up with a diagnosis, let alone what they need, a cure. The prime healer here in Shale suggested it, and we all agreed that in order to learn exactly what ails Alon, and to discover a cure, if there is one, we need to consult a higher power. Valraker turned and looked directly at Jeskelin. Jeskelin is a higher power, Kier thought doubtfully, but then she saw the mage's eyes widen. You can't mean that we need to consult Kami, Jeskelin murmured, his slackened jaw agape. The duke nodded gravely. The prime can think of no other option. Kier looked from one troubled face to another around the room. Nobody seemed happy with the idea. Who's Kami? No one has seen or heard from Kami in years, said Jeskelin. Why, it has been at least fifteen years since I have heard him utter a single sound from his dark tower way up north, and even then it was a three-word declaration, I am busy, that gave us all the strong message that he absolutely does not want to be disturbed. One does not just walk up to the tower of the most powerful wizard in Rydris, knock on the door, and ask for a casual favor as if we were asking to borrow some eggs. It just isn't done. It's our only hope, Valraker said, sinking wearily into his chair. If you don't wish to be a part of it, I won't blame you or bear any grudge against you. It may be that he isn't willing or even able to help us. I'm merely asking you to try. I'll go, said Kier, without hesitation. As will I, Fennel nodded, though the blonde wood elf spoke too confidently for Kier to believe he wasn't afraid. You know I will, Captain Derry said quietly to his lord. Jeskelin stared at the floor and said nothing. Next to him, Janik sat with his jaw crooked in a thoughtful pose and played with his beard. It isn't necessary to make a decision this instant, Valraker assured them. The situation is urgent, but I'm also fully aware of the danger you would be heading into. We'll talk further in the morning. Kier left the chamber as swiftly as decorum allowed. Her teeth felt numb, and no amount of elvish wine had stilled the thudding in her chest. A few hours earlier they had ridden into the city of Shale, expecting celebration after their successful mission in the north. Instead, she had sensed that a pall had settled over the city— Whatever she had thought the cause might be, she hadn't imagined this. Derry stayed in the room with his lord a while longer, but Fennel, Jeskelin, and Janik followed her into the back of the castle foyer. Kier gulped fresh air, only now becoming aware of how many hours they had been cooped up in the small chamber. It had been midday when they arrived, and now the torches and candles were lit to fill the shadows that stretched from corner to corner across the stone. The story of how they rescued the people of Nenya had taken several hours. At least two meals had been brought to them as they told their tale. "'I don't mean to sound like I'm complaining or anything,' said Fennel with a shake of his blonde hair. "'But weren't you hoping we'd get to rest a bit when we got back here? I suppose we'll have to leave again in a few days.' 
Of course. Kier tried to find a purpose for her hands. I'd leave now if I could. Jeskelin clutched the front of his brown, travel-weathered Moabi robes. Some of us have not yet decided if we will go at all, he said softly. Some of us are more aware than others of the significance of Valraker's request. Fennel's forehead creased with concern at the mage's warning, but Kier stood her ground. He needs us to ask a wizard for help. How difficult can that be? My dear girl, Kami is not just a wizard. Jeskelin narrowed his eyes at Kier. I was not exaggerating when I said Kami is the most powerful wizard in all of Rydris. He is arrogant, impatient, and does not like to be disturbed. The black man's voice remained quiet, but its increased intensity betrayed his fear. Casual favors will not be entertained, and I shudder to think what the price will be for such an interruption. This is hardly a casual favor, Kier said, matching his intensity with no trace of fear. A person's life is at stake. Jeskelin drew up his entire five-and-a-half-foot height. Many lives are at stake all over Rydris. War does that. He tapped his staff on the stone floor in frustration. Three years ago, a small party sought his help, and he became so enraged at their temerity, they found themselves scattered, separately, to the corners of the continent. No food, no horses, no weapons, nothing. Alone. It took my cousin six months to reach home again, and he very nearly perished. A gusty sigh escaped his lips. <sighs> Yes, a life is at stake. Nevertheless, no life is worth the risk of summoning the wrath of Kami upon myself. Janik's grunt inserted itself between his two comrades. I'm deciding nothing until I've slept in a bed for one night. He opened the door to the tower stairs. Val said an instant decision wasn't necessary. He darted a backward glance at Kier, his deadened left eye baleful. So unlike some, I'll not make one. He bumped into the doorframe as he shuffled his dwarven bulk into the stairwell. Jeskelin nodded to Kier and Fennel and went after him. Kier did not follow. Earlier, she'd have given almost anything to drag her exhausted, travel-weary body upstairs to her cozy guest room in Shale Castle. Instead, the Dark Elf's announcement had dispersed her fatigue. There was something she had to do before she would sleep tonight. Smoldering, she stalked across the stone floor into the shadows of the castle foyer. Granted, she didn't know this Kami person. Perhaps she ought not to be hasty. Would extra consideration change her mind? Janik knew better than the others how she had been affected by her previous hasty actions. He had every right to caution her about her decision-making. This time, though, Kier's impulsive choice was not a reckless one, no matter how it came across to her companions. I don't need to justify my instant decision to any of them. She hopped up the first few stone steps of the broad staircase that curved its way up to the second floor. She stopped partway up and turned to face the massive oak doors that both provided and denied entrance to the keep. Raising her gaze above the doors, she beheld there the image she had wanted, no, needed, to see. The painted version of Lady Alon Mare stood next to her jet-black horse, healthy, dignified, her palm resting on her sword hilt. Beautiful and deadly. How many had she killed? How many of those were duels in which the lady had been forced to make a snap decision? How many, Kier sucked in her breath, were cold-blooded revenge against the direct order of her superior? 
Kier had killed four men since coming into contact with Valraker. Two had been in self-defense during an attack in the woods. The other two had been one-on-one, face-to-face. The first was a duel in which a blackguard named Simon had cheated. He would most certainly not have been content to accept his defeat had she left him alive. The other... Kier gripped the balustrade as the tempest of emotions swirled around her again. In her report to Valraker, Kier had admitted to killing Ronav Malachite. She couldn't have avoided telling him. But what she had left out was the manner in which she had killed him. Ronav had made himself her enemy. He had beaten her, flogged her, and very nearly mutilated her. He had done unspeakable things to a village full of innocent people. Oh, yes, he deserved to die. And though she had promised Derry she wouldn't take matters into her own hands, she had disobeyed his direct order because she wanted to be the one to kill Ronav. There was no glory in it. Derry had been angrier with her than she had ever seen him. But eventually he had, she thought, understood why she had done it. Kier's vision cleared, and she stared at the lady, a warrior to whom this kind of struggle must not be foreign. Kier nodded, certain that the lady's gaze seemed to forgive her. She renewed the vow she had made a short time ago. I'll do it alone if I have to. She was startled by the sound of a throat clearing softly. You won't have to do it alone, Kier. Derry and I volunteered too, remember? Fennel's light-footed steps had traced hers. He stood at the bottom of the stairs, eerie and ghost-like in the dim light of a dozen or so half-burned candelabra around the stone walls of the foyer. He looked up at her cautiously, politely not intruding upon her space. She blinked a few times, and a grim smile finally eased the tautness in her forehead. He took it as an invitation and leapt two steps at a time to join her. Kier sat and waited for him to ask the question she knew was on his mind, the same question Val had already raised. She braced herself. "'What do you think?' he plopped down next to her. "'Will they join us?' She turned to him, surprised. That was not the question she expected. "'Do you doubt it?' "'I don't know. Jaskelin seems awfully hesitant, and Janik "'Won't say no to a mission that I've said yes to,' finished Kier. "'Janik and I—we reached an understanding,' she said thoughtfully. "'I imagine things won't have changed that much.' She rested her elbows on her knees. "'What about Jaskelin?' Kier's jaw jutted out thoughtfully, and she breathed in the faint odors of coal, wood, and stone. "'If I've learned anything about Jaskelin, it's that he needs to know he's useful.' He'll know we need him on this mission. Kier looked sidelong at her friend. Janik and Jaskelin thought she had been impulsive again. Here was Fennel in perfect position to suggest the same thing, and he hadn't. Somehow that decided it. Kier peered up through the darkness to the enormous portrait that was the focal point of the foyer right above the oaken front doors. The subject of the painting was barely visible in the candlelight, but Kier knew it by heart. How well do you know Alon Mare? The lady looked down at them out of her exquisitely painted eyes, her pale, high-elven face surrounded by thick, multi-hued hair. "'I've only met her a couple of times,' Fennel admitted. "'I think Jaskelin and Janik are both ahead of me.' He turned a puzzled eye to Kier. "'But I've met her a couple more times than you. What made you volunteer? You even beat Derry.' There it was, the question she'd expected. Kier didn't answer straight away. 
Instead, she rose and gazed at Alon's portrait with the same admiration she felt the first time she'd seen it. The sword, the marvelous detail of the lady's leather cuirass that reminded Kier of her own, unequivocal substantiation of something special Kier shared with her. The lady's hand resting on her hilt, revealing the corded muscles in her wrists and forearms. Kier clenched and released her fists, sensing her own strength concealed there. This was what Kier had needed to do before she could retire to bed. Fennel, she began, and her throat tightened. Remember the first time I entered this castle? It was, what, a month ago? And you had to come and get me from this very spot so we could go meet Kian? Fennel nodded. I had to call you about three times. I have never met another woman who was a sword fighter, a true fighter. Soldiers, troopers, yes, but... She took a deep breath as she considered whether or not to speak her next words. I studied the Wepnian, Fennel. I don't know if you knew that. He whistled low. That would explain a few things. Back home in Hreth, I used to train with another girl my age, but she didn't take it as seriously as I did. People used to call me a freak, and names a lot worse. They'd whisper and stare at me. They'd do everything they could to avoid me. Kier pointed at the portrait. She is a warrior, one of the best. She is... Kier's throat caught as she realized what she was about to say. Living proof a woman being a fighter is not freakish. She sat back down. I have more in common with the Lady Alon Mare than I have ever had with any other woman. That means more to me than I can possibly explain. Kier gazed into the wood elf's startlingly blue eyes. Fennel, I know I have never met her. I never will if she dies. Valraker shook Derry's hand. I want you to know how much I appreciate your success in Nenya. It means a lot to me. I'm, I'm sure you understand that. Yes, absolutely. Derry looked at him hopefully. He refilled their wine. Very few injuries and fewer fatalities, excepting the perpetrators. What was it, two? Derry shivered, though the room was warm. Three, he said with reluctant honesty. Unfortunate. Valraker made himself comfortable in his armchair and gazed thoughtfully at the landscape painting that hung above the fireplace. I am disappointed not to be able to question Ronav. He'd have been able to provide us with invaluable information. I knew it, Derry said to himself. Knowing what Valraker's wishes would be, Derry had given Kier a direct order to bring Ronav to him. Instead, she had obeyed some crazed instinct of her own and killed him. Derry had been infuriated with her. Kier was the last one to speak to him. It was hard to keep the bitterness out of his voice. Perhaps you ought to ask her. And that's another thing, Valraker nodded gravely, and Derry exhaled in relief at being able to finally speak of what he saw as his biggest failure on the mission, his lack of control of his own people, well, of Kier, and the resulting death of Ronav at Kier's hand. His lord's next words let him down. Tell me again about Kier's sudden reappearance. She was gone for how long? All day. He unhappily but dutifully switched topics taken by his men at sunrise and full dark when she appeared at our camp. And there was no way she could have known how to find you. The captain shrugged, himself baffled by the strange affair. We had traveled throughout the day and had not followed our planned route. I don't see how she could have known where we were. 
and she was immobile. Derry cringed at the memory. They'd beaten and flogged her nearly senseless. There was absolutely no way she rode a horse in that condition. She simply reappeared out of nowhere. Alraker rested his chin in his hand and tapped the air with his foot. He stared ahead at some point in the middle distance, as if searching his mind for something to grasp. His jaw was tight, and he gave his head a small shake, dismissing some possible conclusion. Then he sat up straight and smiled. Very interesting indeed. Was there anything else? Taken aback, Derry opened and closed his mouth. He wanted to say, I was hoping you had something else to say to me. He wanted to ask if this time he had done enough to satisfy Valraker's exacting criteria. No, my lord, he added hopefully, unless you had anything more. Nothing, Captain, except to say again, thank you for freeing those villagers from a horrific fate. Derry rose awkwardly, confused and more than a little frustrated by his lord's interest in Kier's reappearance, but not her killing of the man responsible for that abominable manipulation of Valraker's people. Also frustrated by the abrupt dismissal, he bowed and exited. Kier sat on the stairs for a few minutes after saying good night to Fennel. She gazed up at the portrait of Alon Mare. Whatever it takes. She descended the stairs and walked around behind it to the little door that led up the tower stairs. As she passed the door to the meeting room, it opened, and she was nearly blindsided by Derry. Upon seeing her, his face looked stormy as he carefully pulled the door to behind himself. "'Did you have a nice talk?' she asked. "'Oh, very nice,' he said sarcastically and went through the stairwell door. "'What does that mean?' she hustled to keep up with him on the stairs." It means, even with the success of that mission, even though we eradicated a problem that would likely have spread throughout all other duchies, even though we saved those poor people from mindlessly killing each other. His voice caught as his intensity increased. She ran to catch up with Derry's long strides. What about it? I thought I had done it this time. Everything he wanted of me. I thought surely this time I had impressed him. Of course you impressed him. You saw his face. Derry stopped on the landing at the second level. Not enough, Kier. He did not offer me a knighthood. He continued up the stairs. Kier rolled her eyes and followed. He's hardly had time to take a breath since we told him everything that happened. Plus, he's got Kian and Alan Mare on his mind. Maybe, maybe tomorrow or the next day. I doubt it. He's your mentor. Can't you ask him why? Derry flung open the door at level three and stopped again. He didn't look at her as she caught up to him. He gripped the door handle. I know exactly why. He didn't offer me a knighthood because I'm not good enough. Because he wanted me to bring the perpetrator to him for questioning. And we both know why I didn't do that, don't we? It would have been less painful if he kicked her in the gut and knocked her down the stairs. He went out and slammed the door, leaving her alone. She heard his boot steps echoing down the corridor. Val hadn't given Derry a knighthood and it was her fault. Kier sank against the stone wall. To Chart's mind, there were two kinds of fear. The fear of things you know, and the fear of things you don't. He wasn't even sure which category this situation fit into. He stood at the end of a row of five servitors, three men and two women, and felt small and insignificant in the massive black chamber. Most of his weight was on his left foot, and he hung his arms at his sides. Surely he at least looked unperturbed. I'm not as convincing as he is, though. 
His neighbor to the left had placed his hands on his hips. His jaw was slack as if he had been here before and had nothing to fear. He oozed defiance as if demanding to know why he'd been gated here. Chart had a strong inkling of why he'd been gated here. He had failed in his assigned task. Time had run out. He couldn't count on his lordship showing mercy. Three other beings shared the space. One was an uncommonly tall man whose height was less imposing the way he sat in his armchair. His long legs were crossed, the top foot on the table in front of him, while his head, dark hair contrasting the odd pallor of the face, was propped against the chair's winged back. His elbows rested on the arms of the chair and his hands were clasped loosely on his belly, thumbs toying with a shiny button on his black waistcoat. On the whole, he was a good deal more at home than the five men and women who stood before him. He kept glancing down at a game board on the table, contemplating his next move. The second being was also a man, dressed in a loose-fitting robe that would have appeared informal but for the fabric which shimmered like spun gold. The shiny black floor mirrored gold beneath him as he stood before them. His hands clasped behind his back. He appraised each of the servitors in turn. The third being was a dragon. Your reports are... The man in gold thought for a moment, doubt on his lean face. Satisfactory at best. I prefer excellence. Lieutenant? Lord Dregor turned to the seated figure. The golden glow from the floor shifted with him, rippling like moonlight on a lake. My lord? The lieutenant's expression was all innocence and mild curiosity. It, more than the stern expression of his superior, sent a shiver down Chart's spine. These hirelings are under your command, are they not? That is so. And therefore is it not your responsibility to see that they carry out their duties as per your direction, which is an extension of the orders given by me? It is my responsibility to relay your orders to them, my lord. It is their responsibility to carry them out. He picked up a game piece and turned it over in his fingers. Chart shifted his weight to the other foot and frowned. The others also adjusted their stances, and Chart was comforted knowing they were trying as hard as he to hide their fear. Lord Dregor eyed his lieutenant suspiciously. Chart had the impression, not for the first time, that a game of one-upmanship was being played before his eyes. The lieutenant was called Golgothar. Though Lord Dregor was the elder, the more powerful as far as Chart could tell, and without question the one in highest command, Golgothar had a mind of his own, and Chart didn't think Lord Dregor fully understood what went on inside it. "'Are you saying,' Lord Dregor said, peering out at Golgothar between his eyelids, "'that you take no responsibility for your underlings?' "'Not at all, my lord,' Golgothar answered with a smile." I am saying that I take no responsibility for their failure to carry out your orders as delivered to them by me. He started to place his game piece, then changed his mind and drew it back. One thing Chart was sure of, if his lordship was ever dissatisfied with the lieutenant's words or performance, it was unlikely to be the lieutenant who would suffer the consequences. Lord Dregor turned back to the five retainers. Well then, he said, glaring at each one, let them explain to me why certain goals have not been met. His gaze settled upon Chart, who shifted so his weight was evenly distributed on both feet. He hoped it might lessen the trembling in his knees. The gaze of the Dark Lord penetrated Chart's defences. 
His blood chilled. His body grew heavier until it was a mass of iron on legs of wicker. No longer able to hold him upright, the wicker gave out, and Chart fell to his knees, a jolt of pain shooting up his back. The Dark Lord's stare drew Chart's jaw downward toward his chest until his head was bowed. "'My Lord Dregor,' Chart found himself saying, "'I serve you with my heart and soul "'and will give of myself breath and bone until death takes me.' The words tumbled out of him unbidden. Chart could not clamp his mouth shut, try as he might. Fear simmered inside him as he surrendered control over his mind, and panic bubbled up his throat until he was shouting, "'I failed, my lord. Yes, it's true. I was to cause a disruption in the city of Shale during the Spring Rites Festival, to put fear in the hearts of the Southern Alliance. I was to have completed the task by midnight of the full swan moon. I was not able to find an opportunity. I did not make an opportunity. I failed, and yet to you I continued to pledge my life and devotion, my Lord Dregor, Lord of all. Chart's body jolted as the Dark Lord yanked the probe out of his mind. His muscles liquefied and he flopped to the ground. Lord Dregor had moved on to the next man, who now assumed the same humiliating posture. Chart heard words, though only in pieces, as if he were hearing them from underwater. I failed, my Lord. Gather two dozen. Guarded realm. Nineteen who were willing to leave their families. "'Devote their lives. We were run out of Prost. Was killed.' The black marble floor felt harsh and cold beneath Chart's cheek. Of the others he heard only faint faraway cries, as if they were calling from the far side of a valley. All he saw were the reflection of gold in the mirror-like black floor, and farther away the red that shone off the patiently waiting dragon. The aroma of steam filled the air, mingled with a faint scent of lavender.' Chart shook uncontrollably. How did Lord Dregor punish failure? What felt like moments and hours later, Chart felt strength return to his limbs. He drew his knees under himself and pushed up onto his elbows. Please can't I just stay down here? But no, he could not. Standing again, though shakily, Chart glanced at Golgothar, who still sat infuriatingly at ease in the armchair, wearing an interested smile. "'I have heard your stories,' Lord Dregor said. "'I trust you will do better from now on.' "'Yes, my lord,' they murmured, and Chart nearly sighed with relief. "'And to help you remember,' Lord Dregor held out his hand. Without warning, something seized the man next to Chart around his middle. "'What? No!' screamed the very man who had feared nothing. His legs propelled him forward under some other power." Chart's heart crept into his throat as he watched the man trying to fight off the invisible hook that drew him across the floor. Chart saw where he was headed and quaked. Griok lay with his enormous head resting on his forepaws, claws curled underneath. His vertical eyelids were closed, though one eyebrow was raised expectantly. The victim came within reach of Griok's claws. Despite his struggles, he was pulled closer until he stood immediately before the gigantic reptile, whose reflection glowed like embers. The man knew his fate. Fear of the unknown had become the fear of the all-too-known, and Griok tortured the poor human by making him wait. Chart crammed his fingers into his ears against the screaming. And finally... Griok opened one eye and lifted one forepaw, twisting it the way Chart would turn his hand to pick up his beer. Griok's great maw opened a touch, enough to show his ghastly fangs dripping saliva, the screaming intensified. 
The paw moved slowly behind the human's body, then drew him swiftly into the awaiting teeth. As the mouth closed around him, his screams stopped, filling the chamber with an even less bearable silence. Lord Dregor lowered his hand and brushed a bit of lint off his golden robe. Lieutenant, he suggested. Golgothar, still smiling as if nothing had happened, bowed where he sat and nodded four times. A shimmering gateway appeared in front of each of the remaining hirelings. Until we meet again, good people, he said, finally placing his game piece. Each servitor shuffled through a doorway, back into the life he or she had given over to Lord Dregor. They took with them the reminder of what happens to those who fail. Just before his door closed behind him, Chart heard Golgothar's voice. It's your turn, I believe. Sleep, when it finally came to Kier after she had seethed into the wee hours, did not help her conclude all her ruminations on Derry's knighthood. Had Val actually told Derry he was not yet worthy of a knighthood because he hadn't brought Ronav back to Shale? She had admitted to Val that she was the one who had killed Ronav. Kier had a hard time believing that the Duke would blame Derry. The Duke hadn't seemed interested in the details during her share of the report, and certainly the captain had had ample opportunity to explain more after she and the others had left the room last night. Kier had a nasty feeling that no such conversation had taken place. Derry, upset over not achieving his goal, needed someone to blame, and that someone was her. Fine. It hurt, but she trusted that Derry was merely angry and would get over it soon enough. What she had not admitted to Valraker was that her act was utterly, unequivocally premeditated. There was no self-defense involved. She sought Ronav out, and she killed him in a cold and calculated fashion. That act was unbecoming of a Wapnian-trained warrior, and it was that which she needed to confess to Val. Valraker, exiled Duke of Eckert, was one of two people in Rydris whose good opinion truly mattered to her. If she confessed to him and he no longer wanted her in his company, she would... Well, she didn't know what she would do. When morning came, she resolved to tell him and she would live with the consequences. Sleep had not altered Kier's frame of mind about the mission, either. She opened the door to the chamber from which they had withdrawn so late last night. It was the same room wherein Kier had met Val's best friend, Duke Kian Barthelen, a month ago before their mission. Now it was Valraker's center for handling Kian's affairs while the other duke was tending his wife at Barthelen Castle, three weeks away in one of his two other duchies. And this morning, as well as providing the privacy the small company needed to discuss the business of the day, it had become the breakfast room. Kier's four friends were attacking the food with desperate appetites cultivated by a month without decent fare. She spared a glance for Derry, but he didn't look up. It was just as well. She couldn't have guaranteed a civil response. Janik's head was turned to one side so he could look directly at his plate with his good eye. He ignored her presence, purposefully. Giskelin was also totally absorbed in eating. Kier wasn't about to let them get away with it. Well, you've slept on it. Are you coming or aren't you? Janik looked up then and glared at her as if she'd insulted his mother. Jeskelin just sniffed. Well, you have to make a decision sometime. She heaped her breakfast plate with ham, eggs, chunks of melon, and bread. Valraker entered whistling, his long black hair freshly combed and tied back neatly, his mustache and short beard trimmed. His gray eyes twinkled at Kier as he sank into a chair opposite her. 
This was not the time to bring up anything morbid with him, though he certainly was not behaving like someone who thought her actions reprehensible. "'My, it's good to have you all back again,' he announced, heaping blueberries into a bowl. Derry looked at his lord quizzically. "'I have proceeded with your travel preparations, if only for the benefit of the three who have already committed their involvement.' He said this without glancing significantly at anyone. "'Further to that, we are expecting one more guest for breakfast.' He poured cream, which turned blue as it washed off the powdery bloom. "'Who is it?' Derry asked. The captain's curiosity seemed forced. Kier had a feeling he hadn't slept well. "'It's only fair that it wasn't just me.' "'Your newest travelling companion. I met with him last night, and he has agreed to join the company on this mission. I've discovered him to be an excellent bowman, as well as possessing several other talents that will no doubt be of valuable service to the group.' You'll ask yourselves how you managed without him in the past. He's truly a unique find, and I'm very pleased that he accepted with no pressuring on my part. Kier took a mouthful of ham and studied the dark elf. Valraker had a knack for plucking suitable members for his company out of unexpected settings, herself not excluded. Their eyes met, and Val winked at her. The door burst open, and she jumped. The newcomer paused ever so slightly to get his bearings, then rushed forward in a brightly colored blur. A small figure planted himself before Kier, to her utter astonishment. She turned to Val, open-mouthed, begging him to tell her he was playing a horrible prank, but he was too busy splitting his face from ear to ear. She gaped at the vision of outlandishness in front of her. "'Dear lady, we meet again, and under circumstances such that I cannot adequately express my joy. Travelling companions, to be able to look upon your countenance, to begin each new day with you in my immediate vicinity, and your face to be the last thing I allow to enter my sight before I fall into slumber filled with dreams of you.' The creature knelt grandly next to her as he finished his speech, and bowing his head horrified her further. Hand on his heart, he recited poetry. Such a beauty is Kier, shimmering gold lights up her hair, her eyes deep green like shadowed lair. Never was there one so fair as my lady, my true love, Kier. He then scampered around to perch on the seat next to Valraker. Kier's gaze remained transfixed upon Skimnoddle. Has Valraker gone insane? "'You'll have to tone down your orations if you're going to gain credibility with this lot,' Valraker murmured to the halfling, who bobbed his head and adjusted his cravat. To the rest of the group, Val said, "'I believe most of you have met Skimnoddle.' Kier looked daggers at Valraker. "'Oh, she'd met Skimnoddle all right. Twice. Once during her lunch at a local inn when she had caught him trying to steal her purse, and she had forced him to return all the items he had stolen from her fellow patrons.' and secondly, the same evening during his performance at the Spring Rites Festival, when he had seen her in the crowd and presented her with the flowers he had been juggling. Valraker well knew the circumstances of those encounters, because he was there for the second one. She thought at the time that he had been enjoying himself far more than was becoming of a duke. Val had shown on many occasions that he was no ordinary duke. He gazed smugly over his companions as if he had just won the war for them all. This baffling, annoying halfling was to travel with them to visit the most powerful wizard in all of Rydris? She glared. Val, are you out of your mind? The dark elf just beamed. As soon as she'd scooped the last spoonful of egg into her mouth, Kier fled the chamber. 
The bell above the apothecary's door jangled as Kier stepped in. The thin-necked man behind the counter was busy with another customer. It was Derry. He said hello, and the apothecary, looking up, saw Kier and blanched. "'How soon can the fenugreek tincture be ready?' Derry asked, snatching the man's attention. "'We may have to leave in a few days.' "'Oh, I, um, perhaps the day after tomorrow. I can't be... but if that is everything—' The flustered man tried to regain his composure. Derry paid him and put the items in a shoulder bag. The man came around the counter ostensibly to show Derry out, which Derry resisted. "'Are you picking up your—' "'Yes,' Kier said. "'He's all right,' she told the man. The apothecary hesitated, but acquiesced. Then he locked the door. He looked at Kier as if she had a disfiguring disease and disappeared into his back room. "'You getting stuff for your kit?' Derry nodded, leaning both elbows on the counter. Then, you must be anxious to catch up on the news with your halfling friend after a long month of separation. Hilarious, she replied. You'll be unable to keep away from him once we leave. All the more reason to keep away from him now, she rolled her eyes. My hair isn't even gold, it's brown. Derry smirked. I'm picturing you two heaped on the floor of the harvest moon with your dagger on his cheek. He spoke genially, but if he was trying to make up for his comment the night before, he'd failed. And then in the crowded square, he kneels before you with a bouquet of flowers. I can't remember now. Did he actually propose marriage to you? You're going to have to deal with the little bugger while we're traveling, she warned. I'll try to be civil, but don't expect me to keep my mouth shut. He looked sidelong at her. No, I would never expect that. Afraid of betraying how that stung, she clamped her teeth. Bastard. The apothecary came back with a sack under his arm. Did you have it hidden in an underground cavern behind a massive door with seventeen locks guarded by a six-headed dragon you had to tame before you could get in? Kier asked. His throat bobbed, and he glared at her as he opened the sack. He drew out the wooden chest that had become Kier's after she killed Simon Diddick. In a hushed voice, the apothecary said, I don't ask where you got this. Any thief would be well rewarded for its procurement. What is it? she asked. Its previous owner had hinted only vaguely at its purpose before he died. It is a shield of a powerful nature. It has additional properties. I have created instructions. I wouldn't have written them but for my fear that the device could be misused. I think it was going to be misused before, Pierre muttered. The instructions are hidden within the lid of the box. Now take it away from here and keep it under lock and key. Anxiety spasmed Kier's heart. What do I owe you? You may remunerate me by getting it out of my shop. He practically booted them onto the street and shut the door, bell jangling. The street was alive with people and horses headed for the square where the mayor was due to make an announcement. Kier adjusted the chest under her arm and wrapped her cloak around her. Derry said... You'd better get back to the castle with that. You think? she said sarcastically. She looked around furtively, planning her route. Derry put a hand on her arm. What did you mean when you said it was going to be misused? Kier shook her head. Something Ronav said, that's all. A family with a passel of children veered around the pair, stepping into the dirt road. The mother swept a youngster out of the way of a rider. I thought it was Simon's. No, he was only Ronav's delivery man. Listen, I'll see you. But what did Ronav tell you? You should tell Val. Derry, she looked at him squarely. I will decide what I tell him. 
Several emotions flashed across the captain's face before he settled on one. Naturally. With a whiff of aloofness between them, Derry bowed curtly and disappeared, weaving through the throngs of shale citizens. Annoyed, Kier frowned and stepped into the current heading north toward the square, then stopped herself. With an enormous crowd gathering to hear the mayor's speech, the square was hardly the place she wanted to traverse with a bulky box containing a vastly expensive and dangerous magical device. Instead, she crossed the street to head east. Kier Halliden. She stopped short and peered into the dimness of the narrow space between a shoemaker's and a guildhouse. A dark figure lurked there. It beckoned. She glanced furtively up and down the road, but the people, intent on reaching the square before the noon bell, ignored her. She stepped toward the figure, fascinated, and the scent of lilacs swirled around her like the shadows. He was uncommonly tall, entirely in black, including the hair that framed a pale face. Kier, do not proceed through the square. It is not safe for you at this time. The box was well hidden. She knew it. I had already decided not to. Go back to the castle as quickly as possible. Head east to Riverside before heading north to the castle. That's where I was going. Who are you? He held up a hand. One who cares for you. Go now, quickly. Backing into the shadows, he vanished. She frowned at the strangeness of the encounter, and how had he known her name? She supposed, with a degree of surprise, that shale citizens would be familiar with Valraker's company and that perhaps her name was now mingled with those of Derry and Jeskellen. In any event, the stranger had echoed her own conclusion. Tightening the chest against her side, she shrugged the encounter off and turned eastward at the next street, a circuit that skirted around the square by a few blocks. She hustled along. The crowds had thinned now that most people were already at the square. It had to be close to noontime. The mayor would appear on the steps of the city hall at any time now. Left onto Riverside, jostling with someone as he hastened out of a shop, she doubled her pace, clutching the chest close to her under her cloak, the safety of the castle approaching. Take it away from here and keep it under lock and key. I hope you enjoyed the opening strains of Gatekeeper's Deception. Now I hit submit on the audiobook of Gatekeeper's Key, so that should be popping up soon. Keep your eyes open. Also, don't forget the Totally Fantastic Title Facebook page and the newsletter. Send me an email to totallyfantastictitle at gmail.com if you'd like to receive that. My website, kristawallace.com, is coming along. <laughs> These things take time. <laughs> I really hope you're all staying safe. Thank you to my family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks always to David and Sharon. Thank you to the original six, and thanks to you. Now, go be fantastic.